1: Anthony is an autism self-advocate, a sought-after motivational speaker, and a former basketball star. As the NCAA's first Division I college basketball player with autism, playing for Michigan State University, Anthony surpassed all limitations that doctors had predicted for his life. He currently works for the Michigan Department of Civil Rights and travels the country as part of the Relentless Tour, advocating against bullying and educating students about autism. Anthony's memoir, Centered, is expected to be released in early September 2021. In this conversation, Anthony shares how he coped with bullies growing up, how his parents told him about his autism, and why he was driven to prove others wrong. We also talk about his basketball career and how his autism affected his relationships with his teammates. Listen until the end to hear Anthony's advice for parents who may be concerned that their child is being bullied. In this episode, discover what's possible when you relentlessly shoot for your goals. To learn more about Anthony and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Anthony Ayani. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me, Rachel. I appreciate it.
1: Could you please briefly introduce yourself?
0: Yeah, so my name is Anthony Iani, and I am the first Division One college basketball player with an autism diagnosis. I was diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder when I was four, and then a year later when I was five years old, a group of doctors and professionals told my parents that because I have autism, to not expect me to do much or be much in my life. They told my family I would barely graduate from high school, never go to college, never be an athlete, and I would end up in a group institution with other autistic kids like myself for the rest of my life. My parents didn't tell me this story until I was a freshman in high school. So that kind of became my motivation to outprove uh those doctors and professionals and any other doctors and naysayers that have my life wrong. I had to work hard at everything, everything from basketball to my social life and especially school because I'm not afraid to admit this, I was not the smartest kid that walked around my high school, but I had a lot of support at the same time from family, teachers, coaches, teammates, et cetera. So I went on to graduate from Oakland High School in 2007. Rather went on to Grand Valley State University for two years on a full scholarship for basketball. It didn't quite work out for me there, so I decided to leave Grand Valley State to fulfill my lifelong dream, which was playing for a certain coach at a certain university. And that was playing for Coach Tom Izzo in Michigan State, where I was a walk-on for two years. My senior year, coaches awarded me a full ride scholarship. I was a part of two Big Ten championship teams, a team that won the Big Ten tournament title, team that had gone to the Final Four, and I you know, got to play with some outstanding group of individuals who to this day, I'm proud to the call them my brothers. And I graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology from Michigan State. Now I'm a national motivational speaker. I travel all over the United States and sometimes internationally talking about my life story growing up with autism, as well as doing my anti-bullying initiative called the Relentless Tour, promoting both autism and anti-bullying awareness as well. So that's me. So a lot, <laughs> a lot of information, but you know, a lot of good information as well.
1: Yeah. We'll dive into all of those little parts about you. So first, let's start with your childhood. You were diagnosed at four. When did you first notice you were different?
0: So I probably didn't notice probably until I got to uh, middle school in sixth grade, because when I was in elementary school, I had a parapro with me from kindergarten till fifth grade. And then when I got to middle school, I was in a resource room. So in my resource classroom, it was it wasn't just individuals who were on the autism spectrum. It was individuals who had ADD, ADHD, learning comprehensions. So it was a different, you know, spectrum, if you would, of different individuals who had different learning disabilities. And so, you know, my first year of not having a para pro was weird, but I had my resource room teacher, uh, Mrs. Hall. And when I started to notice and hear about the other individuals in my resource room class with me, what kind of learning disabilities they had, my immediate thought was, oh, you know, I'm with everybody else in resource room who has a learning disability. So I have one as well. I said, that's probably why I'm in here. So that's when I started to realize that, you know, I'm a little bit different than my regular classmates because, you know, I don't pick up things quite as fast as maybe the normal average 4.0, you know, straight A student would. Whereas me, I had to learn things step by step and process by process. And so that was what my resource room was for, was to help me, you know, learn those classroom lessons and math problems, baby steps at a time and not like do it all together and be done. And so that's when I kind of realized when I got to middle school, but there was nowhere in my mind I even thought about what my learning disability was until I got a little bit older when I was in high school.
1: Mm -hmm. And your parents explained it to you your first year of high school, right?
0: Yep. So about two weeks going before my freshman year of high school, my I was just in our family den watching Detroit Tigers baseball on TV. And so my dad called me into the living room and, you know, my mom was there and my dad said, Hey, sit down. We want to talk to you for a little bit. And so, um, and my mom looked at me and said, well, so we want to talk to you about something that um, happened to you when you were a young kid, when you were about five years old. So my mom said, you know, you were diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder, which is a type of autism spectrum disorder. And when you were five years old, this is what these doctors and professionals said about you. So as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, well, now I know what my learning disability is, you know, what I was diagnosed with. So I'm glad to know I know that because now I can learn more about it. I can learn more about my weaknesses, my strengths, and how I can communicate better with everybody around me, communicate with my teachers and advocate for myself. But also at the same time, all I kept thinking about was what those doctors and professionals said to my mom and dad when I was five years old. Mm -hmm. And... The only thing that was going through my mind was, who would say this about a five-year-old? How can you predict a future for a young five-year-old who's on the autism spectrum? Like, How can you do that? Because, again, I'm a very slow learner. So it took me time to learn my numbers at kindergarten. It took me time to figure out shapes and sizes and all this other stuff. So at the same time, I understand that and go, okay, well, I was slow learning. But looking back on it, I'm like, well, why would you even... Why would they say that? and so so, my mom asked me you know what I thought about all of this, and I said to her, "Well, I'm glad to know what I was diagnosed with because now I can learn more about it and learn more about me." And so I said, "But everything else, I gotta think about it a little bit more." So I remember going back to our family den, I turned the game back on, but then I put it on mute for about thirty seconds, and I just leaned forward on the couch that I was sitting on, and all I said to myself was, "All right." let's go shut some people up. You know, they said that you can't do this because you have autism. All right, let's go out and show them why you can despite having autism. And so so that day forward kind of lit a fire in me that, you know, really set the stage for what my future was going to be like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do just want to comment on what the doctor said, because I think it really shows how much autism research has progressed over the years. Like you are, how old are you now?
0: So I'm
1: 31. 31, right. And so this was like...
0: 26 years ago.
1: Right. And so back then, what doctors knew about autism was so limited compared to what they know now. And so right. with this lens, thinking about a doctor saying that to parents, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We know so much more about it. How could you say something that is so limiting? But when you think about autism, even like 40 years ago... 50 years ago when people were put into institutions. Yeah. I think it's just something to remember, like how far we have come along.
0: Absolutely. And like, just like, as far as like the awareness and like where we were, you know, when I was five years old, because when I was diagnosed in ninety three, nineteen ninety three, 1993, nobody knew what autism was back then. Nobody knew a lot of the characteristics for it. Nobody knew a lot. You know, there was no path. There was no guidance to help those families, individuals, and educators on what to do for an individual in the classroom. And so during that time period, the early 90s, it was more the ADD, ADHD era for diagnosis. Somebody being diagnosed in the autism spectrum during that time, it was very, very rare. And so, but yeah, and where we're at today as far as the research and the ABAs, CBAs, like it's amazing. Like I have all boys on my side of family. My sister has all girls. And so my youngest nieces are twins and they were diagnosed on the spectrum about almost two years ago. And just seeing where they're at now because of the therapy section, because of the treatments that they go through as far as like, you know, language perspectives and everything. Like one of them wants to talk nonstop and just be around people. The other one is slowly progressing. You know, she's talking more, but she still wants to be a loner. She still wants to be, you know, on her own, on her iPad, which I get. Like I was like that when I was her age. But just to see where, how far we have come in everything when it comes to autism, like it truly is amazing. and. We're not done yet. There's still more work to be done, you know, as far as like acceptance for our community and so on and so forth. But, you know, I'm still willing to get behind, you know, whatever I can do to make sure that we get to that point and show society that, hey, we're more than just a diagnosis. We're more than that. And we're going to go out every day and show you guys what we're made of.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, Anthony, tell us about your school days. What was it like for you with the other students at school?
0: I was in a regular classroom. You know, I wasn't in, you know, I had my parapro with me because there were other individuals in that classroom with me who had different learning disabilities. So my parapro was assigned not just to me, but maybe to three or four other students. And, you know, I got along with all my classmates as best I could. You know, I had close friends of mine during recess. We would all go out there and play like football, basketball, because I was a, you know, I'm a big sports fan, you know, whatever sport it is, you know, I try to play it all the time as a younger kid. But I still went through a lot of periods where I was bullied severely because of my autism, because I would say and do things that were just different and out of the ordinary that a lot of the older kids would pick up on and kind of make me the target of being, being bullied by them. And so one example is when I was in first grade, you know, there was a fifth grader who I thought was my close friend. He came over to me, saw me, I was being bullied and treated bad by other kids in his class. He came over, told him to stop, you know, this guy's my little brother, you know, back, you guys need to back off, you know, quit bullying. And so that day forward, I was like, okay, I got an older brother, if you will, that has my back. He's going to be there for me. I can trust him. And then two days later he came over to me and, and a couple of first grade friends I was playing with, he pushed them off to the side so they couldn't see what was about to happen. And then two minutes later, this guy and his friends, because they knew they knew I had autism. They knew that I said and did things different and, the most important thing was they knew I was tricked into doing or saying things easily. So they took me over and they tricked me into putting my tongue on a frozen pole, because this was during, you know, recess. And so and no teacher saw it, principal didn't hear about it because that's why they pushed my friends away. So my friends couldn't go and tell anybody what had happened. But because this guy and his friends knew that I had that I had autism or that I was tricked into doing saying things easily, they really took advantage of them all. And so, and again, like a lot, especially when I got to middle school, like a lot of the folks who either bullied me or disrespected me in middle school, they just saw some of the things that I said it did. And they tried to, you know, kept nagging on and on about it and try to make sure that I kept going on about it. Because, you know, another good example is when I was in sixth grade, I was a big fan of the three studios, you know, Larry, Moe, and Curly, because my dad and his brothers grew up watching that. And it was on the AMC channel one day and my dad sat me down and we were watching it rolling over, you know, laughing because it was so funny. I took some of those jokes to school and I thought everybody was laughing with me. But then it took me about five years to realize that, nah, they were actually laughing at me because if they were laughing with you, you know, they would have just laughed, been done with the joke and had gone about their own way. But instead, they brought other people around and told me they kept doing the jokes, kept doing the noise making, whatever. And then everybody else got like in a big crowd just to watch me and they were just laughing at me. So it took me some time to figure that you know stuff out that, hey, they're not laughing with you. They're laughing at you. But then once I got to high school, that looking back on all that, that was my motivation. That was always my motivation to remember how much pain I went through with bullying and how much pain I went through being disrespected and teased at in middle school to, all right, I'm going to try and go out and prove every single person who did all this stuff to me and show them that, you know, I'm not a joke. You know, I'm more than that.
1: Mm -hmm. How did you cope with the bullying in the moment?
0: Uh, It wasn't easy. My family always taught me to never use violence, you know, never use your hands, your fists. I was always taught to kill people with kindness. So I would just try to smile as much as I can at my bullies and just smirk at them and walk away. But there were also times where where they just stalked me the whole time at recess. But I had to keep just you know pushing on, and so, and I and I stuck close to my closest friends in elementary school or middle school because that's that's when I knew that all right if you stick close to your buddies who really know you the best and who are your true friends you know you're good to go. So that's what I did. So I tried to stick by you know my closest friends as much as possible. And then when I got to high school and I started playing basketball more, I was around my teammates in the hallways at school more because you know I was. I was on the bench with those guys. I was on the court with them. We practiced a whole lot. But the day, like there were days where I felt like just quitting and giving up. But because my dad and my mom kept saying no, because if you do that, the bullies are going to beat you. They win. And then they're going to make sure that they keep reminding you of that for the rest of your life. And so, so I think at the same time, you know, having that support from my family and my friends made me realize that, okay, I'm going to win this battle, you know. It's going to be really difficult. It's going to be hard. But when you look back on it, you're going to become a better person because of that. And the folks and the other students and classmates who see what you have gone through and see where you're at now, they're going to look back at that and go, you know what? As much stuff Anthony Iani took as a kid, he's pretty darn tough mentally because he could have just broke and just fell apart, but he didn't. He just kept going and going despite everything that was going on.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's... Really great that you were able to take it as kind of fuel to ignite this fire in you to keep going and persevere and, and not give up. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, bullying can be a big problem for people with autism.
0: It is. And that's why I got into that's why I started the anti bullying initiative because there was a stat that came out, I think about eight years ago, saying that anywhere between 65 to 90% of kids who are on the spectrum in our country in schools. They are the number one targets for bullies in schools. And that's why I started doing all this because I was in those kids shoes before and, and, and not just like individuals in the spectrum, but all, but all kids who've been bullied. But part of the reason why the bullies go after the kids in the spectrum is because they're the easiest targets. Cause again, I was the easy target because of the things that I said and did or I was tricked into doing things differently. And I have obviously, you know, what's so great about the spectrum, Rachel, as you know, is there are so many different kinds of individuals on that spectrum who have many different wonderful characteristic traits. And so, but some of those kids, for example, may rock back and forth a lot. And bullies will see that in the hallways and they'll go after them for it. They may, they may call them weird. Or they may call them, why would you do this? Why would you do that? Like, you know, why are you rocking back and forth? But again, it's all that's where it's on advocates to tell those individuals, hey, this is why this person rocks in the hallway. Or this is why this person watches his iPad a lot. Or this is why he wears his headphones. Or, this is why an individual on the spectrum can't go to Michigan State basketball games sometimes because it's 15,000 people in this arena and the noises are too much. You know, the stimulus is just an overload. It was, I was the same way when I was four. I could barely go to football and basketball games in Michigan State because of the arena, because of the lights, the sounds. And so, but I was able to overcome all that because of a little trait that I did. So, when the scoreboard would get down to zero and the horn would go off, I would put my hands in my ears and then slowly take them off as the horn's going on. Mm. But then if it was too much, I put my hands back on. So every game I kept doing it and it got to the point where I was just so used to the noises around me. You know, I was able to kind of just control the environment around me. And I told uh, Dr. Temple Grandin that story and she just said to me, you know, you're kind of like the first person I've heard who's kind of done that, like control the environment around you. And then she Asked me permission to use that as an example in her presentations. I was like, yeah, go for it. Have fun with it. But again, like back to the whole bullying piece, I've gone to schools, Rachel, where I've said that stat, the 65 to 90%. And then I've told students my story, and then I've had bullies come up to me and say, hey, I was bullying this individual over there with autism because I didn't know what he went through. I just thought, like, this is who he was as a person. I'm like, well, it is who he is as a person. Because that's what autism is. It's a characteristic trait. And so now you understand why he can't control certain things sometimes. And then I see those bullies go up and apologize to their victims. And it happened for first school I went to. And that was something that I was proud of from day one. But it also told me, hey, these kids want to learn more about it. And once they learn more about it, then they can start having their backs for the rest of their high school, middle school, you know, time the time they're in their high school and middle schools together.
1: Yeah. And it's just making me think, you know, you said this boy kind of put it together like, okay, he's doing that because he has autism. Mm -hmm. And he said, I thought it was just who he was.
0: Right, right.
1: This also just shows so much about humans, maybe how we are naturally with tribalism and othering people and kind of like, if you're different, if you're doing something different or if you're behaving differently you become ostracized from the group. Right. And it shows up in so many ways in adults also. Like you see it on social media when people are kind of attacking each other for having different political views. And I wonder, like your work is so important because it's teaching kids who will be future adults, obviously, about just accepting people for who they are and not just excusing them because they have a diagnosis. Like it's, you know, letting them realize, like treat everyone with kindness.
0: Exactly, and I'll piggyback off of that. I've also told individuals like, you know, why would you want to bully and disrespect somebody in your own school when you're actually part of the same group? You're part of the same team. You're part of the same family. So the last thing I talk about in my presentations is, especially in schools, I talk about their school mascot. So, for example, if I go to, I'll just use Lavonia Churchill, where I currently live and and help coach basketball at. Their mascot's the Chargers. Like I will tell that school. You know, why would you bully and disrespect somebody in your own building? Because guess what? You're part of the same group, the Chargers group. You're on the same team, the Chargers, and you're part of the Chargers family for life. Like when you graduate from Livonia Churchill High School, you're a Charger for life. And so for me, I graduated from Oklahoma. We were the Chieftains. I'm a Chieftain for life. I graduated from Michigan State. We're the Spartans. I am a Spartan for life. So why would I want to try to disrespect or bully somebody who's part of my own family? because I care about that family more than a lot of other things in my life. And so that's what I tell kids, like, what's the point? Like what are you trying to prove by doing this? Like why would you bully somebody who's part of the same team, who's on the same team as you, who's in the same group as you, who's a part of the same family that you are for the rest of your life? And so that part really does hit home with kids cuz I remember this was about 3 years ago, I was at West Ottawa Middle School which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so the principal was telling me how before I got there, they were having trouble with, you know, certain groups, you know, that were in the hallways and just trying to disrespect and bully each other. And so when I talked about the whole family, you know, and team and group message, a lot of those kids went to the principal and said, I understand it now. I understand what he was talking about. You know, the West Ottawa Panthers, like we are part of a unique family here. We're part of something that nobody else gets to be a part of. And we need to understand and realize more that, you know, this is us, this, this is our group, you know, and that's what, that's what makes racial schools so great is that you meet individuals who are from different backgrounds, different culture backgrounds, who are from different states, different countries, and you get to learn more from them. So again, why disrespect that person? Why, why bully that person? And so, and and that's a message that I'm going to try and carry and continue on for as long as I can. Because as long as bullying's still around, like we need that message out there.
1: Yeah. And I think that sometimes bullying becomes like an expected part of going to school. You know, people will say, oh, whatever. They're just kids being kids. But yeah. I like what you're saying though, about thinking about everyone being on the same team, because you can even extend that to breaking down borders in a way like literally between countries, you know? Why are we fighting? We're all part of the human race team and we should just be more compassionate towards each other. And what kind of world would that be?
0: <laughs> right. And and I remember too like 4 years ago when Donald Trump got elected president, I went to a school the next day to speak and I had a principal tell me how scared a lot of his students were because of everything that he was saying, everything that he was doing, like it really, it, it legitimately scared his students. And so he was like, can you kind of like give, give a message to my students about, you know, just staying positive and like what we can do to be together. And so this was the first time and probably the last time I had ever done that this, you know, I talked about family, but then I changed it up a bit. And so what I did was I went over to the corner and, I'm usually in gymnasiums or auditoriums to speak. So I went over to the corner of this gym that we were in and there was an American flag just, you know, hanging there. So I took the flag, I put it over my shoulder and I told each and every single one of those individuals, like, you know, yes, you are part of something special here at this school, but you're part of something bigger. And I showed them the flag. I said, this is what you're a part of. And this is what makes everything around us so great is that we're all part of different cultural backgrounds. Yes, we are different in many different ways. We have different traits. But this flag symbolizes us. And so that was the first time or last time I ever done that. But I remember the principal coming up to me and said, that's the point I wanted to hit home with my students, that we are all on the same team, no matter where we are from. And our flags, our school mascots, they all represent us. And we need to realize that and come together. And so, but like you said, though, the social media aspect of things. That's what really drives people, you know, through the wall, if you will, because some person might say something, they try to voice their opinion. No, oh, your opinion's wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. It's like, it's like when I was in high school, if somebody was bright, it's like, okay, well, you got your opinion. I got mine, but we can come together and find a way to agree on something. Whereas now like we keep, everybody's trying to butt heads on subjects. It's like, so that's why if, if I didn't have the platform that I have today, I would be off of Twitter. You know, I would even be off Facebook because it's like, it's like a, I, I'm tired of seeing people trying to butt heads when it's like, mm-hmm. how about we all come together and try to learn as one and try to do something together as one?
1: Yeah. And social media is a really strange phenomenon these days mm-hmm. because, <laughs> you know, when you're arguing you can't see the person's face. It's not a live interaction. You don't know what emotions are going through them as they're typing it. There's a lot that can be misconstrued in the message. And it can be really dangerous for increasing this kind of polarization and just division between people. Yeah. Back to your work. What do you want the kids to take away from your presentations?
0: So the two messages I've have for them in my presentations. The first one is be careful what you say and do to others, because you never know what that person will end up being like in the future. I've always told students that that person you may bully, tease, or disrespect, you know, that person could end up being one of the greatest athletes in the world one day. Could be the inventor of something bigger and better than iPhones, iPads, computers, TVs. Sometimes students don't think about this. That person they bully, tease, or disrespect could end up being their own boss. You know, it could be their boss one day at the job they work at. Or they could end up being one of the biggest names in the world one day. And I found a list about eight years ago on my computer. It was the top 50 celebrities that were bullied as kids. And some of the celebrities I name off who were on this list are Eminem, Justin Timberlake, Selena Gomez, Taylor Swift, Tom Cruise, Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan. And so whenever I name these names off, a lot of these kids, like their faces just go from serious to like, Mm. seriously like and, and I tell those kids all the time like yeah and I had one kid ask me you know about Michael Jordan why was he bullied so much I said because of all the hard work he was putting into basketball and how he was cut from his varsity team as a freshman and people made fun of him for that and that kind of drove him to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time so when these kids hear these names of these legends role models and icons and heroes that they look up to It really changes their perspective on how they should go about treating each other. And then the last message I have for them is don't just go out and be the change that you wish to see in life. Go out and actually make that change. And so I've had schools who didn't have an anti-bullying club, if you will, or didn't have an anti-bullying month or didn't have like a week to celebrate it during October. And then a week later, I'll have an administrator say to me, hey, I had five students come to me the day after your presentation, and we're going to do an anti-bullying week here in school, or we're going to have a autism awareness week in our school. And so when I hear things like that, it's like, okay, there are kids who want to make a change in life. It doesn't have to be the entire school that wants to do that. It can just be one person, because that's always been my motto as a speaker is to, Go out, make an impact, leave an impact, even if it's only on one person. So as long as I inspire at least one person everywhere I go, you know my job is done. So, But when I hear that at least one kid in a school wants to go out and not just be the change, but make the change they want to see in life, it really warms my heart because I know that, that that individual's future is very bright. And that town and that community is going to have an even brighter future as well, because one person wants to get behind and push a change they want to see. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That kid is then going to go out and inspire other people in their community. And it's just like a domino effect from there.
0: Absolutely. So you're
1: really reaching so many individuals.
0: I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to do as best I can. So.
1: Okay, Anthony, let's go back and talk about your basketball career. Sure. Yeah. So what made you interested in basketball in the first place?
0: So obviously my parents were a big reason why, you know, my dad played uh, baseball at Michigan State and then my mom was a three-sport All-American at Adrian College and my mom still holds like nine league records in basketball. She's the school's all-time league scorer for both men and women's basketball. Oh, wow. She has a number retired, her jersey retired. So just kind of seeing what, you know, my parents did as athletes in high school and in college, I was like, okay, well, so I want to get into that, you know, whether it's baseball, football, basketball whatever but just seeing what my mom did in her basketball career that's what really made me want to do basketball but also watching guys like michael jordan reggie miller patrick ewing magic johnson larry bird all these guys from the early mid to late 90s um i mean even kobe bryant when kobe was just starting his career alan iverson who's one of my all-time favorites shaquille o'neal just like seeing all these guys on tv and following their careers it made me want to be like them and then of course you know going to michigan state basketball games and being at you know the the big Spartan fan that I am. You know I'm. I don't mean to say this because I know there's a lot of other great fans out there, but I'm probably the biggest Michigan State fan that you will ever. Meet. <laughs> um, you know I know so much about. And I know so much history about Michigan State. It's kind of funny. Different story for another day, though. But you know, just seeing, watching all those guys play, it made me want to get involved in basketball. So I played competitive ball when I was seven years old, and and of course, like I played. We played uh, our our little league rec ball from when I was up until sixth grade. And then, of course, we had the middle school team when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And then my freshman year in high school, I was on the freshman team. And by my sophomore year, I was on the varsity team for three years. So definitely, you know, my parents were a big reason why. And of course, my sister, she went on to play college volleyball for Michigan State. And just seeing the recruiting process that she went through with different college coaches and different universities, it made me want to be... I wanted to have a process like that. I wanted to have, I wanted to be recruited in high school by other colleges and, and coaches. I wanted to be, you know, a part of great teams, you know, in high school. And so, cause, so basically any family history that I had or my family had from my mom, my dad, and my sister, like I wanted to live up, you know, I wouldn't say live up to those expectations, but try to like keep that standard going of what our family did in athletics.
1: Cool. I used to play basketball in high school, too. Okay. Yeah, I was not very good, more of a bench warmer. And I think by the time I was a senior, they just had to put me on varsity because I was a senior, not because I was very good. (laughs) And um, But it was so much fun, and I definitely have respect for the game. Absolutely. Tell us about your experience at Michigan State. How did your autism impact your relationship with your teammates?
0: So I'll start from high school. So when I was brought up my sophomore year on for varsity, there, I think there was only one guy on our team that knew about me being on the autism spectrum and he went to the same elementary school as me and he lives like a block over from where my parents live. And so, so we knew each other, you know, from elementary school and then we went to two different middle schools. Cause when I was growing up, you know, Okamis, Okamis public schools had two different schools. It was Kinawa or Chippewa. So if you went to the same elementary school, You know, if you went to a certain elementary school, you go to Kennawa. If you went to another certain elementary school, you go to Chippewa. So so my mom worked at Chippewa. So I I went there instead of Kennawa, where I was supposed to go. So I didn't see a lot of those guys. I went to elementary school until I got to high school. And so my sophomore year, only one guy on the team knew about, you know, my diagnosis. And then as the year went on, you know, we would have team dinners and everything. And so my mom and our all-state point guards mom, they were teaming up for team dinner one night. And so I guess the conversation just happened between my mom and, and Mrs. Jones, Jonathan Jones's mom. He's our all-state, all-star state all point guard. And so the conversation just happened. And so the next day, you know, Jonathan's taking me under his wing right away. And then I had a group of older guys who were just, you know, they were my big brothers. They took me under their wing. They showed me the ropes. You know, I'm in the hallways of school hanging out with them, you know, just having conversations with them. Because they knew that, again, there were things that I said and did. That they didn't understand, but then once Jonathan's mom and my mom had that conversation, he understood why. You know, other guys on the team started to understand why, too. And so that's why, you know, the two years I had on varsity with those guys who were older than me, it's what made it special because they understood it. And they knew that if something got to me and it bugged me, then they, then one of them would just be like, hey, just just back off, you know, back off Anthony for a minute. You know, you, you could tell it's bothering him. Like, just let it be. But that's what made our locker room chemistry so great was that we could joke with each other. But if somebody takes it a little too far, then one of us isn't afraid to say, hey, just just back off. You know, we don't want to do that. And so but then when I got to college, you know, because, again, I was recruited by all these different schools. You know, Michigan State, Michigan, Notre Dame, Wisconsin, Purdue, Valparaiso, Indiana, Purdue, Fort Wayne, Division Two schools like Grand Valley State, Ferris State, Northwood and so on and so forth. So a lot of those coaches that recruited me, they had an idea. They knew about my autism. It kind of made those coaches not recruit me anymore because some of their schools and universities didn't have the resources at the time that could help somebody like me be successful in the classroom. okay. So my final three came down to Michigan State, who offered me a walk-on spot right off the bat, Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, which is about an hour from where I live, and it's a Division I school. And then, of course, Grand Valley State, you know, I wanted to go to Oakland because, you know, that's where Jonathan went. But then my full right offer got pulled back, you know, got offered to another kid. So it was Michigan State or Grand Valley State. So I ended up taking the full right offer, having a conversation with Coach Izzo about what I should do. And so when I got to Grand Valley State, we had this team meeting, kind of like a team icebreaker meeting. And one of the questions was, tell your teammates something that nobody knows about you. And so I was like, um, all right, well, is this my moment? Do I want to tell this story? Like, do I want to tell about my diagnosis? Like, what should I do? And so when they got to me, I just let it all out. I was like, all right, well, when I was four years old, I was diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder. And you know, that's, that's aut- it's on the autism spectrum for nobody in this room that knows. And this is what I was told when I was five years old. And as I was telling the story, I remember our senior All-American point guard just looked at me the whole time like this like just wide eyes, everything. Cause he couldn't believe what he was hearing. And so
1: had they heard of autism before?
0: One of them did because, um, one of them was studying special education at the time he was getting his master's. okay, And so he had an idea, but everybody else in the room was just like, you know, what, what is autism? But I think they were more surprised of what was said about me when I was five. And mm-hmm. so after, after I told them that, you know, a lot of the seniors in that group came up to me and said, Hey, you need anything, just let me know. You know, if you're confused on something, let me know. And especially uh Tommy Fellows, he was the one who was studying special education. And so Tommy was just like, hey, you need anything, I got you. You need to talk, I got you. Somebody's giving you back be- somebody's you know giving you a little too much, you know, joking around too much on the team and it's bugging you, just let me know, and I got you. And so, but when I got to Michigan State, I kind of kept my diagnosis on the down low. Because, you know, you go from a big-time Division two program to a powerhouse Division I program that is Michigan State. And you're playing guys that you played against in travel ball, but it's a whole different atmosphere. It's a whole different atmosphere. So when I got there, only two guys on the team really knew about my diagnosis. One was Austin Thornton. Austin and I have known each other for 16 years now, and we both played travel ball together. And then Mike Keebler, who was my high school teammate. And so they knew. You know, Austin knew Mike had a good idea, so they understood. And then none of my teammates knew about it until there was an incident in the weight room one day with one of my teammates, Draymond Green. And if that name rings a bell, he plays for the Gold, his, you know NBA All-Star for the Golden State Warriors. So Draymond was joking with me in the weight room one day about how I had to go do the VO2 workout again. And for those of you watching and listening to this that don't know what the VO2 workout is – The VO2 is a way of measuring your endurance, sometimes your your body fat, your sugar levels, your oxygen, et cetera, et cetera. So when you go to a certain school for athletics, you have to do the VO2 workout as a freshman, and then you're done. So just to measure your endurance. So I did it once at Grand Valley State. I did it once at Michigan State. So the our incoming freshman had to do it. And then Draymond the next day was joking with me the whole workout, saying I had to go do it because Coach Izzo said so. And in my mind, I'm thinking, and one of my biggest weaknesses is I don't understand jokes and sarcasm really well. I can't tell if somebody's being serious or they're being, you know, or they're being funny. And so I, I couldn't tell because he said Coach Izzo said so. So in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, he said Coach Izzo said so. So he's got to be serious. And then it got to the point where I can kind of tell that it wasn't a, that it was a joke, but he kept going on and on and on about it. And I remember I walked up to him and I said, Hey, Like, you need to quit. Like, this is just really bugging me right now. Like, I really wanted to go up to him, Rachel, and just, like, you know, punch him in the face because I was just so angry and upset. And then he said to me, he said, well, look, Anthony, here's the deal. If you can't take a joke, then just don't be here. And then my strength and conditioning coach, who's known me since I was 10, he dragged Draymond off to the side and said, hey, do you want to know why Anthony can't understand you? Do you want to know why he can't understand your joking? It's because he has autism. He doesn't understand your jokes. He thinks you're picking on him. He does not see the gray area. It's it's very black and white for him. Because my strength and conditioning coach, he has a niece who has Down syndrome. And so he understands it. He gets it. He understands it. And so the next day, Draymond came up to me and said, hey, why didn't you tell me all this? And my 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 excuse was, I didn't know how you were going to react. I thought you were going to be like a lot of other people that I've known in my life who found out and then treated me completely different after that. And then he looked at me and said, well, hey, well, kudos to you because look at how far you've come. And then from that day forward, I wasn't afraid to ask my teammates, hey, was so-and-so being serious or was he joking? Or, hey, was he joking? Or do we really have to do this tonight? You know, yada, yada, yada. So I wasn't afraid to walk up to my teammates after that and ask them. But they learned more about autism because of me. And now some of those guys who have gone on to, you know, bigger and better things, if they run into somebody with autism, they know what to do because they had two, three years with somebody who's on the spectrum. At the same time, it was really a blessing that that incident happened in the weight room. And because I remember after my strength and conditioning coach, when he told Draymond about me, like it was just one of those things that just happened. Like he didn't ask me for the permit, like if I was cool with it, but it was afterwards he said to me, hey, I told Draymond about you, are you okay with that? I was like, yeah, like I'm fine with it. If it's going to help, you know, de-escalate the situation, I'm good. You know, I'm good with that. But again, it was a blessing in disguise that all that went down because now my coaches are asking me questions. Hey, if we recruit a kid who's on the spectrum like you, how should we go about recruiting them? What should we do? Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, well, ask them what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are. Let them know that Michigan State has one of the best support services for individuals on the spectrum. We are one of the top universities as far as autism research goes in our, you know, in the country. Like let them know because, you know, you did it with me and you can continue to do that. So even, even though like I graduated eight years ago, my teammates and my coaches, they are still trying to learn more about autism and what it is. And so they, so if I get a random text out of the blue from a former teammate of mine saying, Hey, I got a teammate who has a son who has autism. You know, what can I do to help them? And I'll just write like a page long text about, okay, this is what you should do. So again I was very happy you know that that incident looking back on it it was a blessing in disguise and I'm glad it happened.
1: Yeah. You know it's really interesting that you didn't disclose your diagnosis at first cuz you didn't want them to treat you differently but were you ashamed of your autism? Was there some part of that too or
0: No, I never was Rachel because I think part of me was just like I don't know how people are going to react to it because again like we talked about even 10 years ago, not a lot of folks out there still understood what autism was. Mm-hmm. What are the characteristics for it? Oh, a person rocks, who rocks back and forth is on the spectrum. Like That's what people thought about when they saw autism. Or, oh, you have autism? Oh, you're not going to be much in life. And so part of me was like, I don't know how they're going to react to it. Like, are they going to think it's weird? Like, so that's kind of why I kept it like on the down low because I did not know how, how my teammates were going to react to it. And a lot of my teammates, a lot of them came from different, different parts of the country. I had, I had teammates who were from Detroit, Michigan. I had teammates who were from Cleveland, Ohio. I had some who were from where else? I had a couple who were from Indiana. Like, so again, different areas, different backgrounds. And we all learn about each other. But again, I did not know how they were going to react to it. Because mm-hmm. in the past, though, I had disclosed my diagnosis to you know people that I either went on dates with or I just hung out with. And I, I never heard from those individuals ever again. So that's why part of me was a little hesitant to even tell my teammates at Michigan State. Cause again, all right. If I tell them, are they just going to keep me out of the loop on conversations? Are they just not going to tell me things? Like, but again, like if that incident didn't happen, you know, I don't think I'd probably have the relationship that I have today with a lot of those guys. And I don't think that the respect that I earned from those guys, you know, I don't know how much I would have earned from them you know, if they hadn't found out. And, you know, a lot of my teammates, I earn their respect because number one, I worked really hard. I pushed them to practice every day. But I think uh, number two is because of what I've been able to overcome in my life. You know, I think that kind of gave them, you know, props to me even more. But never once did I think that I was ashamed of having autism. Like to this day, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm actually proud of having autism because I've always tell young kids who are on the spectrum, hey, be proud of who you are because you are part of a unique group with me and other individuals, Mm -hmm. because we all are on the spectrum. We're all different parts of the spectrum, but we are all unique in our own ways, in our own different ways, if you will. And so I've never been ashamed to have autism, and I'm always going to be proud to have that label for the rest of my life.
1: I can just imagine, because I don't know what it's like to have an autism diagnosis, but I can imagine that some people might not want it to define who they are.
0: Right, Right.
1: And have people, like you're saying, be looking at them through a a different filter of the label of having autism or knowing that they have autism. But at the same time, it's so important to know when to speak up for your needs.
0: Yeah. Advocate for yourself.
1: Yeah. Advocate for yourself, whether it's at school or at work. And in your case, in a social situation with your friends or your teammates, like, hey, I need help understanding these jokes. Yeah. And them stepping in and supporting you. But like you said, if that interaction did not happen, then you maybe would have kept feeling frustrated or run into other situations where you wanted to sock someone in the face.
0: Right, right. And I think it also helped me become better as a professional, as a speaker too, because if there are things that I need to help make the anti-bullying initiative, I run the Relentless Tour better. I'm not afraid to go to my supervisor or my boss and say, hey, I need to add this to the Relentless Tours website or I need to do this for the initiative. You know, what resources do we have to help me get to this point or how can I or what can I do to get these resources to make the initiative the best it can be? And so so it definitely taught me how to advocate for myself and help utilize my resources to help me become not just better as a speaker, but as a professional for my colleagues um, that I work with as well.
1: How does your autism affect your life now?
0: Um so for me, you know the jokes and the sarcasm piece you know are still there, and they always will be. I've been happily married for over seven years now, and you know there are times when my wife wants to be really sarcastic with me, you know, kind of joke with me, but I can't catch it and I'll have just this blank stare on my face, and my wife will just look at me and go, you know babe, it's okay, I was kidding hashtag sarcasm, you know it's cool, it's cool. But then there are some times where she wants to be funny with me and I can't understand it. And she gets frustrated by it, but she still walks away from the situation and goes, you know what? That's my husband. That's who he is. That's why I love him because you know, of who he is and what he's gone through and how much he, you know, how well he treats me and how well he treats everybody around him. And then I have two little boys, my five-year-old Knox and my two-year-old Nash. And there are times where, you know, I'm so impatient with my kids. You know, I'm not, you know, there's no such thing as the most patient person in the world. I mean, if you, if you, if anybody listening to this or here mm-hmm. watching this, if you are the most patient person in the world, God bless you because it is so hard to be patient in anything these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times where, you know, if my kids, you know, make a repeating noise that's just you know loud and loud and loud, it will really bug me sometimes. And that's how I've always been on the spectrum. Like if somebody's making like a tapping noise. And I tell them to stop and they keep doing it. Like, I'll just lose my mind. And there are still times where, you know, I need to have my coping mechanism. So when I was in high school, I would go to the gym if I was stressed out or I had a lot on my mind or if I was just more of my mind was running 100 miles an hour. I go to the gym for two hours and just shoot. I don't have basketball anymore. So some of the things that I do to help cope and, you know, kind of relieve my stress and anxiety I'll either go upstairs in my room, just be by myself for 10 minutes, or I'll just listen to music for half hour. You know, if I'm if I'm angry, upset, I'm listening to hard rock or whatever. If I need to calm down, I'll listen to light R&B or just slow songs to help chill me out. Or I'll go for a, a four-mile walk in our neighborhood to kind of just get me away from certain situations. And then I'm back to being me. So there are still things being on the spectrum that kind of makes me go cuckoo at times. But as long as I have those coping mechanisms to help deescalate situations, then I'm going to be okay. But the joke and the sarcasm piece is probably the biggest thing that always happened with me. And then obviously my kids, you know, being kids, it'll push me to a breaking point at times. But at the same time, I sit back and go, you know what? They're five and two-year-olds. They're going to be crazy. They're going to be, you know, <laughs> they're going to jump on you like a trampoline, which is what my kids do all the time. But when my kids get older and when I tell them about, Hey, this is why your dad didn't like it when you were doing tapping noises. This, this is why, you know, I didn't like this. And so, cause I had somebody ask me the question, you know, when are you going to tell your kids about you? And I'm like, well, not for a while because one's five and one's two. But there was a book that recently came out not long ago called Autistic Legends Alphabet. And in this book, it's all the different individuals on the spectrum. So the letter B is for Tim Burton, or the letter D is for Dan Aykroyd, and apparently, and my sister sent me this text like a month ago. The letter I stands for Anthony Ianni, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And so, you know, I ordered it, and then I showed my kids that book, and they were just like, they were ecstatic, they were excited because you know their dad's in a book. But you know, my my oldest wanted me to read it to him. I was like, well, I don't know if you're ready for this yet. He's like, just just. Just read it until the letter I. I was like, all right. So I was reading it. And so, but then after I got done reading to it, I said, I said to myself, you know what? He may not understand this now about why I'm in this book or about these other individuals that I'm part of in this book. But at the same time, five years from now, when he looks at it, he's going to go, oh, this is what autism is. You know, my father has it and look what he's been able to do. And so, so I want my story to motivate my kids at the same time and let them know that, hey, their daddy was able to do this. And so, so yeah, autism still affects me to this day, and it always will. But at the same time, if, if it's going to continue to help me help others, you know, I'm not going to complain.
1: So was there a moment that inspired you to become a motivational speaker?
0: So being a motivational speaker, Rachel, wasn't even in the back of my mind. It never even crossed my mind because my senior in college, Like every other senior in college, what are you going to do with your life? like What are you going to do? And so my dad had worked in athletic administration at Michigan State for over 26 years. He was the deputy athletic director, which is just a step below athletic director. So I had done all sorts of great things when my dad was at Michigan State and went to all these great events. I went to a lot of Final Fours, a lot of bowl games, was around Michigan State football and basketball players my whole life. And so just seeing what my dad did, I was like, you know what? I kind of want to go into the family business, if you will. And so so I started taking class. I took a couple classes my senior year on uh, how to do event management, how to uh, work game days. So I worked a few football Saturdays at Michigan State, worked some volleyball games, softball games for event management. But then it wasn't until uh, MLive.com, which is a big news site here in the state of Michigan, going into my last game at Michigan State senior day against Ohio State, MLive.com wrote an article about me, a senior day feature, about me being on the autism spectrum. And it was kind of like the first time ever my story went public. And it, it ended up being a really big deal, not just around the state, but for those around the country as well. And um, our lieutenant governor at the time, Brian Cowley, he was trying to get the autism legislation bill passed for insurance companies to cover autism resources and autism treatments for families who needed them. So during that time, Brian had... He has a young daughter, Reagan, who's on the spectrum, and so during that time, Brian had heard about my story, and so and then he keynoted our uh, basketball banquet a couple of days after our senior night, and not even a day went by in his office called my my parents' house asking me if I would keynote this autism gala in Detroit. You know, later on that spring in April. And of course, I, I didn't think about it at the time because, you know, we were just starting tournament play. We were going to the Big Ten tournament. Then we were going to start the NCAA tournament. So the only thing on my mind was I want to get back to the Final Four. I want to try and win a national championship. And then we had lost in the tournament. And then I remember telling my mom after the game, I said, hey, mom, you call the lieutenant governor's office and tell them I'm in. I'm all in. Like, I'll do the keynote. I, I But I'd never done a keynote in my entire life. You know? I, I wouldn't even count classroom speeches as keynotes because <laughs> that's in front of your classmates, your friends, your teachers. And so but
1: how many people were at this event?
0: About five hundred people were at this gala. So so the most I've ever spoken in front of is probably those 20, 30 people in the class in classes and whatnot. But these these weren't just like these were legislators at this event, these were professionals, people from Ford and GM were at this thing. So it was a really big deal. So I worked with my learning specialist at Michigan State. We met like twice a week. And so all she and I did like for two weeks straight, was just work on the speech. And so I remember I did the speech. I got it was like nine, 10 minutes long. I got a great ovation to a great reaction. And I remember driving my wife home that night. And I said to her, I said, I said, babe, I said, I think I'm I think I know what I'm supposed to do now. And she said to me, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, I said, other than Temple Grandin, who's maybe one of the most famous individuals in the world with autism, I said, I said, other than her, I said, name me somebody else like that in the autism community, who's a big role model, an icon, and a leader that people look up to in the autism community. Other than her, try to name somebody else for me right now. And it was 30 minutes of silence. She couldn't name anybody. And I looked at her and I said, All right, you know what? I'm gonna go be that person. I'm going to go be that guy. I'm going to go be that leader, that role model and that inspiration that the community can look up to. And so from that day forward, that's how I got into motivational speaking. Mm -hmm. It was because of our Lieutenant governor, because of that gala. And then two months later, the nonprofit organization who hosted uh, the gala hired me to do autism and anti-bullying advocacy work. And then two and a half years later, the Michigan department of civil rights hired me to bring on the anti-bullying initiative that currently run now. So it was amazing how things were just, how things fell into place. But after asking my wife that question, name me somebody else in Temple Grandin who does this and who's a big inspiration for the community, when she couldn't name anybody, that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to go. I'm, that's my path then. I'm going to go be that person.
1: Are there any events or speeches that stand out to you that have left you particularly moved?
0: Um, wow. I've done a lot of them too. I've done a lot. So I got three of mine. So my first one is my first ever anti-bullying presentation I did. It was at St. John's Middle School. It'll be eight years next week, actually. And so I remember the day after i spoke, I'd gotten a phone call from a parent who had a son at that school. And she was crying over the phone. And she had said to me, you know, I want to thank you for everything you did in my son's school yesterday, because my son, just like you, he's also on the autism spectrum. And he came home yesterday with the biggest smile I think I've seen on his face in a long time because he had told me he had one of the greatest days ever, not just because he met somebody else like him, another person with autism, but because his bully who's been bullying and tormenting him for over five years just because he has autism. My son's bully walked up to him after your assembly yesterday and he apologized to him. And I remember Rachel just sitting in my office, just going, my first ever presentation ever, you know, out of how many in the future I'm going to have. First one ever, and this happened. But I think what made it really unique and great was the individual involved was somebody like me who has autism. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this happened, I was like, I was like, all right, I said, if it could happen here, let's see where else it could happen at.
1: It's like you you saved a life there, you know, whether it was that kid with autism or the bully. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you think about bullies, trying to dig into why they're a bully, where is that coming from? Right. Maybe if they've been bullied before, what their home situation is like, what their parents are like towards them. You know, sometimes there are just deeper stories there, and if you can shed some light and change that bully, that's huge. Think about all of the people that they are not going to bully now.
0: <laughs> right, right. Which brings me to my my next story or my next presentation. I was at East Lansing High School in the fall of 2014. And and sometimes I'll get messages, whether it's email, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or letters. And this young girl who was at East Lansing High School, who who saw me speak, she wrote to me on Instagram the next day saying how her life was completely changed from that day because she was on the verge of possibly taking her own life. And then she told me how she was so happy that she went to school the next day because I was there. And I had talked about my struggles. I had talked about what I went through. And, of course, I immediately sent, you know, that message to the administrator over at East Lansing to keep an eye on her. But when that was sent to me, you know, my heart just kind of sank for a minute in the pit of my stomach because I was like, because, like, whenever I go out and speak, Rachel, I don't think about that stuff. I don't think about it because the only thing I think about is. Go inspire one person or as many as you can. And, and that's your day right there. Your day is successful. But I didn't even think about something like this two years into my career. And when I saw that, my heart just sank. And then when I hear that you're the reason why that my life is going to turn around. And from what, and from what I was told a year after that, she was doing really great. Mm. But when I hear something like that, I didn't know how to, res- I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know how to react. Because how can you react to something like that?
1: Yeah, I just got the chills hearing that story.
0: Because it's like you just said you know, previously, you saved a life, but I don't think about that stuff. Because you know, I'm just a normal, I'm a, I'm a normal, average, everyday guy who has a great passion and love for what he does. Who has, who has, who's blessed with a great family, great wife and kids, a great support system, whether it's family, friends, coaches, teammates, work, etc. I don't think about that stuff. You know, and if I and if something like that does happen, then I'll send it to, I'll send it to my colleagues, let them know because they want to know what's how the process is going. But when I got that message, I was like, okay, maybe the Relentless Tour, maybe your message, your story is it's more than just a story. Mm. It's more than just you, and th- this isn't about what you have done. It's about it's about what you're trying to do for these kids because it shows them that you've been in their shoes, you've been there before. And so times like that, it really does make me sit back and realize that, you know what? This is what your message can do and will continue to do. And then my last one, it was a, so I do, I do a participation segment with students. I this is probably my most funniest ones. So I asked three questions and it's about Justin Timberlake about who his closest friend is. And it's, it's Jay-Z for those of you that didn't know, but I try to give the, so, Today's young generation doesn't know that. So I help them out. I give them hints. You know, first, you know, this individual, Justin Timberlake's closest friend of real life starts with the letter J. And they'll come up with all these different names. I had one kid, though. This was an event in Nebraska. They said they looked around and go with a smile on their face. Said to me, Jack. they said, Jackie Robinson. (laughs) No joke. This student said Jackie Robinson I didn't know how to respond and I don't know if you've seen Family Feud or anything with Steve Harvey when contestants give goofy answers Steve Harvey has some of the cl- most classic reactions that was my reaction I-, I had a Steve Harvey reaction he said Jackie Robson and I go huh and then I-, <laughs> I shared it to the audience I walked away I was like <laughs> and so cuz he was serious and this was a senior in high school at the time and I took the microphone I go See, you do realize Jackie Robinson's been dead since like 1964 or something like that, right? And the whole place just started laughing. But I think that's one of the many highlights, too, is some of the laughters and the memories and moments I get from those interactions with students. And I think that's the one thing I miss right now about being on the road is that I miss those interactions. I miss those interactions with the kids, the students, the teachers, the professionals. And so... So hopefully when all, when when this pandemic dies down, hopefully within the next year or so, or less than that, hopefully, you know, I'm going to be going like crazy and be thankful and happy for what I have as a speaker. So, and again, I there, there have been other great events I've been at and I've been so blessed with and so many great stories and memories, but those were definitely the three that have always stood out to me the most.
1: Why do you call it the Relentless Tour?
0: So I called it the Relentless Tour because, you know, somebody came up the name with the name, the I Annie project. And I was like, no, like I don't want to make it about me in the initiative, the messaging, like it's about my story, but at the same time, it's more than that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be about me. And then somebody came up with the idea of, well, what about relentless? Like the relentless tour, because you're being relentless in your pursuit of eradicating bullying. And you're being relentless in pursuing and showing others what autism awareness is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I like that. And so, so the initial idea behind it was I was going to visit all 659 middle schools in the state of Michigan. That's how many middle schools are in the state, 659. And then when I launched it, I was getting phone calls and emails from private schools, charter schools, high schools, elementary schools. And that's when I sat down with the team I was working with. I said, you know what? Let's just drop the middle and let's do all schools. Because I think this is a message that can really hit home for grades 3 through 12 and any, in any school, whether it's public, private, charter, et cetera, because I think it's something that could really hit home. Now, I don't do K through two because, you know, I have, a, I have a kindergartner at home and I know that attention span is only maybe good in 20 minutes. But it also gives the school an excuse to have me back two, three years later when those kids are older. So, but that's how the name relentless came up. And, and I kind of adopted it to having a relentless mindset because I'm relentless in everything I try to do in life, I'm relentless in trying to eradicate bullying trying to make sure that we get autism awareness and autism acceptance in our society. I try to be relentless for my wife and kids to show them that I'm going to try and work hard and do as much as I can every day for you guys, for our family. And I've also inspired and encouraged every person to be relentless in life. You know, because if you got dreams and goals in life, go get them. Like, don't just sit in a chair every day hoping and praying they're going to come to you. Like, you got to go get them. So go be re- relentless and attack those dreams and goals in life and go be successful. So that's how the name came up. And so I, I use the hashtag relentless on Twitter every time I go out and speak, you know, Facebook. I just got on Peloton a couple months ago and hashtag relentless is on there. And I get to take all these different bike cycling classes with, it with the hashtag relentless. So it's definitely a motto that not only was it born an anti-bullying initiative, but it's also become a motto that I've lived by my whole life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really powerful. So Anthony, you have an upcoming book titled Centered. Yep. Tell us about that.
0: So uh, Centered, which will be released in early September of 2021 next year. So Centered is about my life growing up with autism. And so basically it starts when I was born to when my parents kind of had an idea about what was going on with me at two years old, how they noticed some things were out of the ordinary different, to my diagnosis, to that meeting when I was five. And basically throughout my entire school career up until I graduated college and to where I'm at today. So students in school maybe probably, and this this is not just a book for students, it's a book for everybody. So it's basically my life story, but it's for everybody to read. And what I love about this book is that for students who read it and who have heard me speak, they probably have only heard a fourth of my life story. They haven't heard the whole thing. And so now they get to read the whole thing, you know, because there are more stories in there about me being bullied as a kid. You know, why I did certain things on the autism spectrum. And I think my favorite part about Centered is that I put a lot of my IEP plans in there.
1: IEP is Individualized Education Plan.
0: Yes. My evaluations from those IEP plans. Because I want to show parents that, number one, I think it can be really impactful, you know, for these educators, professionals, and parents to read my IEP evaluations, to see what was said about me in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, so on and so forth. And just seeing, you know, how far I've come because of a great support system, because of a good public school system and because of a team of educators and administrators who came together and said, "Okay, let's talk about what's going to work for Anthony. If this doesn't work, what will? You know, we got to come together and do this as a team. It can't be just the parents do this by themselves. It can't be just all the teachers did this by themselves. Like we have to do this together as one. And so. So I'm very excited about it. You know, it's not just a book on autism. It's a book on, it's a sports book. It's a, it's, it's, it's a book for people who get behind underdog stories. And so I'm really excited for it. And this has been, so me and my co-author, we started writing it in the summer of 2018. We signed with the agency in the summer of 2019 and we signed with Indiana University Press, uh, this past June. And of course, there's a lot of other things that we want to do with it and a lot of other things. As far as the book outside the book go, that are in the works, so I'm just excited. And for me to be able to have the title author next to my name, like number one, it made it made my mom and my dad proud because mm-hmm. they both wanted to see this happen. But number two, I mean, somebody once told me seven years ago that I had to write a book because number one, a story like this had to be in print. You know, just let it all out there and tell everybody, your experiences. There's a big difference between doing a 40 to 45 minute presentation or our PowerPoint presentation to laying out your entire life story in print. So somebody, a school administrator told me that and said, and you write a book, you're going to take your career to the next level. Maybe the levels you never thought that you can get to. And so, so I'm very excited. And of course, my mom still wants me to write a kid's book. So, (laughs) so I think maybe next summer, you know, I'll start planning that out and going from there. But you know i'm really excited so be early september 2021 it's going to come out so i hope everybody really checks it out and enjoys it
1: yeah looking forward to it and i can just imagine other kids maybe opening it up to a certain page when they're feeling a certain way and feeling inspired and having that on their bookshelf as something to access easily maybe after seeing you live and starting to follow you and everything so it's good to just have your message out in as many outlets as you can
0: Absolutely. And like I said, I'm going to continue to do this for as long as I can.
1: Okay. I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who may be concerned that their children are being bullied?
0: Oh, man. So I think for me, obviously, number one, you talk to them about it. Because I've, I've had students who have said to me, they don't want to talk to anybody else about it. But I've also, at the same time, i told the students, well, if you don't talk to somebody about it, it's going to get worse. Because if you talk to your family about it, they're going to help guide you through those situations like my family did. I've had students say to me, well, if I see bullying going on, I don't want to tell a teacher or a principal because I'll be a tattletale. I'll be a snitch. And I've always told those students, well, first of all, that's what I used when I was your age. So my generation owns those terms. Get your own terminology. But if you don't tell a teacher or a principal about what's going on, then you're part of the problem. And so instead of being the solution, you're being part of the problem and you don't want to do that because then that situation is going to continue to escalate and it could get to, and I mean, God forbid, it gets to a worse, worse in heights, if you will, a bad, an even worse situation. Mm-hmm. So I've always told parents to continue to have the conversations with your kids, you know, ask them how their day is going. You know, if something happened, you know, ask them why, talk to them about a why and tell them if it keeps happening. Don't be afraid to tell your teacher. Don't be afraid to tell your principal because they want to help you. They want you to be safe. They want you to learn from these experiences. And every teacher and administrator and principal I've talked to, they've all said, yep, we try to make sure our school is a no-bullying zone. And if it is, like if something goes on, we talk to our students about it because that's what we need to do in order to de-escalate situations. We have to come together and talk about certain situations because if we don't, those situations will continue to get worse and worse and worse every day. So my advice to parents is continue to have those conversations with your kids. Continue to have those conversations of what's going on. Why is this happening? Hey, does your teacher know? If it keeps happening, let your teacher know or let your principal know because it's their job to help not only teach you to be a better person, a better student, but it's their job to make sure that you stay safe and to make sure that the situations are de-escalated.
1: All right, Anthony, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, your message is so important in the work that you're doing. It's changing lives and saving lives. And it's just great for anyone who wants to overcome an obstacle or continue on and reach for their goals. So please continue your work.
0: I will, Rachel.
1: (laughs) How can people learn more about you?
0: So they can either go to my website, which is www.relentlesstour.com. So the word relentless and then tour.com. They can follow me on Twitter, which is AI44LYD. They can follow me on Instagram, which is AIGameChanger44, or they can look me up on Facebook. So I'm on every single social media platform, and so that's how they can look me up. And uh, you know, if anybody has any questions for me, I mean, feel free to reach out.
1: Awesome, thanks, Anthony.
0: Thank you, Rachel.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Compared to typically developing children, students with autism are more likely to be rejected by peers and face verbal and physical attacks because of their difficulty managing social interactions. As Anthony mentioned, the statistics are startling. In 2014, researchers from the Kennedy Krieger Institute and Johns Hopkins University conducted a survey of 1,200 parents who had a child with autism spectrum disorder. Findings showed that 63% of the children had been bullied and had often been intentionally triggered into meltdowns or aggressive outbursts by ill-intentioned peers. Another study from March 2020 in South London found that adolescents who had reported being bullied we're nearly twice as likely to go on to develop suicidal thoughts or behaviors. The disturbing realities reflected by these statistics must come to an end. Bullying can no longer be normalized as typical childhood behavior. Anthony's work with the Relentless Tour is changing and saving lives. With more autism awareness education in schools, our youth can learn to accept and respect each other's differences. Every child should be taught to recognize what bullying is and know that it is not acceptable. Parents who are concerned that their child may be a victim of bullying should reassure them that they are not to blame and provide tools to help them cope with any emotional pain. Teaching children to fight back may just escalate the situation and encourage inappropriate problem-solving and self-regulation. The Autism Society published a useful article by behavior analyst Dr. Lori Ernstberger. This article outlines the three R's for developing a comprehensive anti-bullying program. Recognize, Respond, and Report. Dr. Ernstberger encourages parents to recognize signs of bully victimization, such as significant levels of anxiety, low self-esteem, depression, or physical ailments. She also emphasizes that school personnel must respond to bullies immediately and consistently. When bullying goes unaddressed, some bullies are likely to continue bullying behavior into adulthood. The last step, reporting bullying to school officials, is necessary in order to determine if the interventions in place are actually resulting in a decrease of instances. For links to this article and the studies mentioned earlier, please visit our show notes. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by The Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, You'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.